Philippians chapter 4 is where we will be this morning, and actually concluding our study through Philippians. Um, I was planning to do this two weeks ago, and then of course uh, wasn't able to do so, and then Brother Mike Glisson was with us on last week, of course, and so we are picking up where we left off um, several weeks back now in our study of Philippians, in which we will finish, and Lord willing, uh, next week we will begin our study in Colossians. And so just moving right ahead, right along, and uh, I'm looking forward to that as well. So look with me, Philippians chapter 4. We'll begin our reading today in verse 10. We've already covered this portion of the, of the passage of the text, but I want again to provide some context for you um, from verse 10 throughout the remaining verses of the epistle. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Now I want to remind you of something here. Let me pause for just a moment. When you look at uh, this passage, Paul says in verse 11, I told you you could outline these few statements and understand the uh, some of what Paul is actually saying throughout this portion of the text when he says in verse 11, I have learned, then he, in the latter part of verse 11, to be content, and then in verse 13, through Christ. And that is really what Paul is teaching us here in this portion of the text. Verse 14, Notwithstanding ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire your fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God... And our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Father, again, we thank you for the privilege to open the word of God this morning. May we have attentive hearts, receptive hearts. May you give us uh, eyes that can understand, see and understand, and ears to to hear and understand and hearts to receive and understand the truth that is before us this day. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, for the sufficiency of the provision that's been made in him, for truly he is superior to all things. And I thank you for the revelation of this truth throughout this epistle to see the superiority of our Lord Jesus. And Lord, may we as Paul have a, uh, may it be our greatest desire to know him and to continue to grow in the truth of who he is as he is revealed in and through your word. And Lord, may again, every, every thought that we think and every word that is spoken, may it be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. As we have clearly seen throughout our study of this epistle, which has been uh, nearly a year now that we've been in Philippians, Paul provides his thesis statement in chapter 1, verse 10. And as I've shared with you many times, when we look at the scriptures, there is a, especially the epistles in particular, there will be thesis statements that are made within usually the first verse. 
This is our first chapter of the epistle, and, and it would be akin to that as of writing a, a paper, a, a type of uh, college paper, high school paper, what have you, in which you make a thesis statement, and, and that statement then carries uh, the weight of that paper, because the weight of the, the paper then is really going to be used to explain and reinforce this statement that has been made. And so Paul's thesis statement in Philippians, and that sets the tone as well, of course, for the theme of the epistle, understanding what this epistle is about and the purpose for which it has been written. And in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul wrote, approve things that are excellent. Now, this is in the midst of, of his conversation, introduction to and greeting to the church at Philippi. But the statement he makes, approve things that are excellent, it actually means to test or examine the things that are superior. Gave you an outline, which we're not going to go through all of that again, but in our overview introduction, beginning chapter uh, studies of Philippians, I gave you an outline which actually explained in the divisions of the epistle where Paul is expounding upon the things that are superior. And there are multiple cases in which Paul does this throughout the letter. We know uh, over the past weeks and even months during our study in Philippians, we've examined verses 8 through 14 making up the ninth of the ten divisions within this epistle, in which Paul wrote concerning the excellence or the superiority of the contentment experienced in Jesus Christ. Now, several weeks ago, we began our study of the tenth and final division, in which Paul deals with the superior, superiority of, the, of God's provision in Jesus Christ, which is how he concludes this epistle. I previously summarized verses 10 through 12 for you. I want to do that again. In verse 10, Paul is expressing his joy that the Lord has once again provided the opportunity for the Philippian believers, our church, to partner with him in the gospel. Then in verse 11, Paul explains that this joy is not due to a personal lacking that he is experiencing, or, uh, but rather something that he wants or needs, but rather he has learned to be satisfied and embrace God's providential work in his life without questioning or without resenting how God's providential plan may personally affect him. And then in verse 12, Paul further expounded upon the stability of this joy and that through the extreme circumstances that he had experienced as he outlines for us, he remained confident and, con and content in God's provision. We then went on to verse 13, which again, I must address this, especially since it's been a, a several weeks since we have been in Philippians, where Paul says in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And again, I remind you that contrary to the manner in which many people have misrepresented this verse, viewing it with extreme subjectivity, Paul's statement that he could do all things through Christ had nothing whatsoever to do with his ability to achieve or, or to accomplish his own personal goals or agenda. This verse has been so perverted today by so many, and they pluck it out of its context entirely, and then say things, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, when they are not talking about the gospel, and they're not talking about God's eternal spiritual will and purpose, but they are talking about their own personal agenda and their own personal goals and, and that which they desire to accomplish. And then they basically are saying, nothing can stop me because Jesus is in me. Well, again, I, I just lay this out for you. How many of you will escape death? None of us. So you will not escape physical death because Jesus lives in you. So there's one thing you won't do. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not saying, okay, I can make a good grade on this test because Jesus is in me. He's not saying I'll do good at work. He's not saying I'll go far in ministry. No, he's saying 
that I can do all things, regardless of what the circumstances of life may providentially, God may bring in my direction or my way. If I am suffering need, then I know Christ will sustain me for God's purpose to be fulfilled in and through me. Not that God will sustain me so I can get what I want, but God will accomplish his purpose no matter what the obstacle or what the the difficulty may be as it may represent itself or present itself in my life. He's saying none of that means anything in relation to God's purpose being fulfilled. Here's the problem. We've become so earthly-minded that we want to take spiritual truth and then try to stick it in our lives as though this is God's promise to us. No, this is not an earthly-minded statement. This is a gospel-focused statement. Paul just said he's in prison. He's in prison in Rome at this time. And here he is in prison, not wanting to be in prison. Who would want to be in prison? But yet content nonetheless that God's purpose is being accomplished and that he is right where he is supposed to be, even though that's not where he would desire to be ultimately. He is right where he is supposed to be as God would providentially work in and through his life to fulfill his, God's purpose in Paul's life. And that is so important for us to uh, understand and, and recognize. So this statement that Paul makes in verse 13 is a declaration of Paul's confidence that the Lord would sustain and empower him through all circumstances of life for the purpose of the continuation of the gospel and the fulfillment of God's purpose within his life. Verse 14, notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. Paul again acknowledged and applauded the Philippians for their continued participation with him in his suffering for the gospel's sake. During our last study of this text, we considered how Paul emphasized God's provision in Christ within this final division of the epistle. And this we'll get into our text this morning. Verse 9 and verse 23. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Then verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Here is, here is the provision and the, and the superiority of God's provision for us in the person of Christ. Let's read on in verses 15 through 17, which is where we ended last week in verse seven, or last time together in verse 17. So we'll read verses 15 and seven, through 17 again. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once again again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Now, within these verses, we've seen that Paul expressed his thankfulness for the faithfulness of the Philippian church to partner with him in the ministry of the gospel from the very beginning. When no one else was supporting Paul in the gospel ministry, the Philippian church did so. So Paul again expresses that his desire for them to be a part in the ministry of the gospel with him was not selfish. Paul was not saying, oh, I want you to join with me again when you're able because I have real need and I'm waiting, I'm depending on your support. He's not saying, well, you know, where I'm lacking, I'm sure you're going to make it up for me. And Paul recognized in other other places of his writing where the church uh, in Macedonia, that region, and and of course Philippi being a part of that, how that this area was a very uh, needy area at that time. The church was not abundant as was the Corinthian church concerning uh, their financial status. And yet, they suffered, they sacrificed to support the ministry of the gospel. And Paul was thankful for that. But notice, Paul was not saying this from selfish desire and motive or for personal benefit and gain. And he explains that even further, of course, in verse 17 when he says, 
And look at the latter part of verse 16. He said, "Ye sent once and again unto my necessity. When I, was, when I was in need, you sent. But then verse 17, he explains, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. So Paul expresses this is not a desire selfishly made for himself, but that the Philippian church would experience the joy and the blessing of being fruitful in the gospel ministry. Paul was already, has already stated, I am not concerned about my physical well-being, about God providing what is necessary until the time he chooses to call me home. He says, I'm not worried about that. I have learned if I am in need and, and, need and, and desire, or if I'm in want, he says, in other words, if I'm hungry, he says, or if I abound and am full, I have learned and understand that I am content through Christ. For God's provision in Jesus is more than enough. And he says God will sustain regardless for the fulfillment of his purpose and his plan and the furtherance of the gospel. And so Paul is explaining that so clearly. And he says, so my desire that you again and my thankfulness that you are once again able to partner with me in the gospel has nothing to do with my physical needs being met. Though I'm thankful for that, Paul is saying, but rather my desire is that you partake in the suffering and sacrifice and propagation of the gospel, that you may have spiritual fruit that abounds, eternal fruit that is being produced within and through you. By that very understanding, the gospel ministry denounces selfishness by its very definition. As Paul explained in the Carmen Christi or the Hymn to Christ in chapter 2, which is the good news of Jesus Christ as it's centered on the message of of his humility and self-denial. In chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 5 through 8, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Let me remind you, in verse 5, where Paul says, let this mind be in you, he is saying, just as Jesus humbled himself to the Father's glory and for the redemption of fallen man, and came not to be served, but to serve. And in John 13, you find that so clearly stated, as Jesus washed his disciples' feet, if you recall. And he's saying, I leave this for an example, not that they have to wash each other's feet, and as are we, not an ordinance for us, but that we would serve humbly one another, and we would lower ourselves. And when we find this statement of like-mindedness, or the same mind in you, I shared with you that we find a, a, a consistency in Scripture, and that is that the term is used in relation to us humbling ourselves and not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but rather viewing those who are part of the body of Christ before ourselves. And so let this mind be in you. Jesus is the superior example of this truth. He did this in excellence. So this morning, as we continue our study of this final portion of Paul's epistle to the Philippian church, we continue to discover Paul's expression of contentment in Jesus as God had provided for him in Christ all things. Look at verse 18, and now we pick up our study. But I have all and abound. Now, Paul's in prison. So Paul doesn't have freedom, does he? Paul doesn't have comfort, does he? Being in prison. Think about this for a moment. But Paul says, I have all. Again, we're talking about a spiritual, eternal focus and perspective, not a physical one. Surely, Paul 
was not abundant in all things at this moment. He's still imprisoned nonetheless. But he says, I have all in abound. I am full. Then he says, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. So Paul's perspective is eternal and spiritual, and he lacks nothing because of Jesus. And then he says, but you have ministered to me in physical things, and I have received of them. But notice how he defines this offering and this gift. An odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. While Paul had previously explained his continued contentment through extreme circumstances, as we see again in verses 11 and 12, let's read those. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned, and whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. I know, and everywhere in all things, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and suffer need. And again, it's interesting in this passage that Paul uses extremes. I know what it is to be hungry. I know what it is to be full. He doesn't say, I know what it is just to get by. He's using extreme examples to show that from this extreme to this extreme, Jesus is more than enough. And that God is going to faithfully provide so that his purpose be fulfilled. Not my desires, his desire, his purpose, his will. Within verse 18, Paul declares that at the time he wrote this letter, that he was without need, meaning he wasn't hungry or suffering in the sense of that he uh, was in desperation for food. But yet, having received, it came by gift of the Philippian church, which Epaphroditus had brought him. Now, the manner in which Paul described the gift which he received from the Philippian church, as I mentioned, is, is rather interesting. Paul referred to this provision again, verse 18, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Now, obviously, Paul is not talking about they sent him fragrance. But Paul is saying that what you have done and your sacrifice and your contribution to the gospel ministry and to the furtherance of the gospel through me as you have given to me in the ministry God has given me and made me steward over. He says, unto God, this is a sweet-smelling savor. Now, this is an important description, and, and it, the way in which Paul describes and defines this gift has tre tremendous significance. For Paul explains that this gift from the Philippians was far greater than simply food and physical provision. Such sacrifice for the sake of the gospel is a sweet-smelling offering unto the Lord, which is reminiscent of the sacrifice of our Lord, as Paul stated in his epistle to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, listen to what Paul says. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. So we are to be following after Christ. We are to be imitators. Imitators not trying to replicate but his life is to be lived through us, which is the greatest imitation, obviously, because we are not him and he is not us, but he is in us. And so his life is to be revealed and manifested through ours. And he says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So the same manner in which Paul describes Christ offering himself to the glory of the Father for, on our behalf for our redemption as God's sacrifice, our atonement, is the same manner in which Paul describes this partnership within the gospel ministry that the Philippians have engaged with Paul. So in other words, he's saying that your giving and your sacrifice and your selflessness 
and your eternal and spiritual perspective is reminiscent of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I would venture to say that it's probably very rare that those, even in service to the Lord, that their sacrifice is very, it's probably very rare that it is compared to that or reminiscent or makes people think about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul recognized that not because their gift was great, but because of their submission and sacrifice and selflessness, which is what Paul mentions in chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's what he's talking about. And here, the Philippian church has demonstrated that. They had personified that. Not because they had some great gift and this great financial uh, uh, offering was made or this uh, provision of food which just stocked his cupboards for you know, years to come. Of course not. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with their identity and the sufferings of Christ and the propagation of the gospel. Regarding the continued sacrifice of the Philippian church for the sake of the gospel, Paul wrote in verse 19, we go on. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now notice something here. Paul did not say, but my God shall supply all my need. Wait a minute. Why does Paul not claim, will God not supply the need? Of course he will. And Paul's already expressed that. He says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. He's saying God will be faithful to sustain and provide what is necessary for his work to go on. Regardless of how it affects me, God will be faithful. But here he says, my God shall supply all your need to the Philippians. Now this verse, much like verse 13, is also often misunderstood or misused due to one's failure to consider the immediate context. This statement is that made by Paul in verse 13 is one of confidence in God's provision to sustain those who are submitted to him in the gospel ministry. As we just saw, and we've seen in previous writings of Paul, and I've referenced them a moment ago, this church at Philippi, was not an affluent, financially affluent church. And yet they sacrificially continued to give whenever and however they were able and capable of doing so, even to their own detriment physically. And so Paul is saying to this church, but my God shall supply all your need. Now the question is, I think we have to stop and ask, so what's the need? Well, the need is God's grace in Christ. That's the need, is it not? According to his riches, what are the riches? The grace of God in Jesus Christ. In glory by Christ Jesus. As Paul had personally declared that God would sustain him in verse 13, he now declares that God will also sustain the Philippian believers as they sacrifice their provision and their lives for the sake of the gospel. I mean, let me ask you a question. Based on the mentality by most today who are probably attending church services, wherever they may be, these two verses, verse 13 and verse 19 of, of Philippians chapter 4, have been memorized, quoted, misused, mistaught, misrepresented to the point that in reality it has become, again, so subjective that no one is considering the identity we have in the sufferings of Christ, in the ministry of the gospel, 
And if this were to be read as most people read it, if this were to be stating as most, what most people think or many people would think that it states or what it says, then here's the reality of it. No believer would ever suffer at all, and we would have prosperity and just pleasure and comfort or be comfortable the rest of our life. We will be comforted, but comforted implies that there is suffering in which we need to be comforted. And so, but we would be comfortable. And furthermore, here's my question for you. What are you going to do with the martyrs who literally gave their lives unwilling to renounce Christ and the faith and the gospel? Oh, was God not sufficient for them? Of course he was. Is God, were they not able to do all things by the way? I would say this. They were able to remain true to the faith and the gospel even to their own death. I would say that's pretty much summing up verse 13, isn't it? I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Even at the time of my death, if it be for the sake of the gospel, Jesus Christ will be infinitely more than enough to sustain. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth further expounds upon this truth. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6-10, Paul wrote, But of this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth the cheerful giver. And God is... Well, let me stop there for a moment, because let me address this. Again, most people look at this, and they use even this passage of Scripture and where they're trying to drag money out of people, right? Give, give more, you've got to give more. Oh, and if you sow a lot, then you're going to reap a lot. Well, yeah, Scripture does say that, but let's look again at the context. What is this in relation to? It's in relation to the gospel ministry. And those who are sowing much, they reap much. And those who are supporting, giving sacrificially for the cause of Christ and the gospel, that there is a great fruit that will abound, as Paul mentions in Philippians chapter 4 concerning these Philippians. So he's saying that the fruit may abound into your account. That's what he's talking about. So he says here that we're not to give. Notice what he says here. And, and I love this. This is such freedom to be able to declare this truth as, as a pastor. He says, as every man hath purposed in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity. You know what he's saying here? Do not give in a manner in which you're going to regret giving after you've done it. And do not give in a manner in which you're giving out of guilt because you feel like you must. That's interesting, isn't it? And I would dare say, I'll go further than that. And I will tell you, there's probably not a whole lot of pastors going to say what I'm about to say. But it's the, it's the truth of the Scriptures. If you give because you feel guilty if you don't, you are giving disobediently. And if you give... And after you've given, you're going, man, I really probably shouldn't have gave that much or I shouldn't. Then you are in disobedience. Because the scripture is clearly stating that we are to give as we've purposed in our hearts. So let him give. Let him give freely. Let him give of the grace that he has received. But if a person gives, and that's one reason, as you know, we've never practiced this and I will not practice this. Where if there is a need and people want to give, we will do it discreetly. I will mention it. We will do it discreetly. Go to the people who need to be told. And so there's an understanding or accountability that is present. 
But we will never say, okay, who wants to give $100? Raise your hand. Why? You know what happens when that happens? People start looking around going, well, I, if they gave, I better give. Then they raise their hand. And they go home saying, I really shouldn't have given that. Or they go home saying, I only gave it because I felt guilty if I didn't. Are you following? And that's what Scripture says is disobedient giving. So the point of the matter is, we are not to give because we're supposed to, and if we don't, we're in trouble. And we're not to give in regret of what we have given, but we are to give as we have purposed in our heart. And I would say this, for believers in Jesus Christ, there is a desire to give because much has been given for us. So there will be a desire present to give. And by the way, that doesn't have to be monitored by a financial board of the church, and it doesn't have to be monitored by a pastor or by some committee or council, meaning, not I'm not talking accountability, I'm talking about making sure people are given what they say they're going to give or what they're supposed to give. No. You know what? As you've purposed in your heart, so let, so let a man give. So let him give. He goes on to say, notice, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Oh, one who's not regretting and one who is not guilted into giving. And God is able, look at the next statement, God is able to make all grace abound toward you. Oh, wait a minute. If, if you sow much, you reap much. How do people use that? Oh, so if you sow financially, God's going to abound, give you abundance in finances. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, as you are committed to support of the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ, all grace abounds, all goodness abounds towards you. Not all money. So again, if people give thinking that if I give, I get more, that is greed. That is not cheerful giving. And that is giving with an expectation that now God owes me because I did something and he told me this. No, God is not saying that. God is saying, as Paul explains, that as we give financially, monetarily, physically, in support of the gospel ministry, whatever that may look like, as we do such, that all grace then abounds toward us. God is going to bless an abundance of his grace. Notice what else he says. That all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work oh so wait you mean if we give sacrificially to the gospel and we're expecting then god to abundantly bless us if he does so even monetarily if that be the case it's only for the sake that there be a more abundance of good work godly work going forth out of that it's never meant for self-consumption in the sense of god blesses us so we can just consume ourselves he goes on to say as it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sore, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Oh, the fruits of your righteousness. Notice again, this has nothing to do with monetary value, meaning receiving on the receiving end of he who is giving. Verses 20 through 23 of Philippians 4. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you. Chiefly, they that are Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. As Paul commonly did, he concludes this epistle with a doxology and with salutations to all those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Basically, he's saying, may our God receive glory forever and ever, for he alone is worthy. As Paul stated in Romans, Romans eleven thirty six, 36, which is our our 
verse for our church. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. What a statement. God will receive glory in and through his church as we recognize with Paul that knowing Jesus Christ is superior to all other things. Let me remind you as we conclude this epistle, our study of this epistle, after Paul had provided his impressive resume in chapter 3, where he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, I was, uh, uh, concerning the law, there's no one to compare to me in, in keeping the law. And Paul, it looks as though, again, Paul was being boastful, which he isn't. He's making a point. He's saying, if anyone can glory in the flesh, none of us boast of the flesh, but if there's anyone who could boast in the flesh, it's me. Paul says, oh, I can, I can give you a list, and here it is. Here's my, here's my resume. Look at who I am. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. But then notice what he says in verse 7, following all of that. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but lost for the excellency, for the superiority of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, but refuse, that I may win Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Notice what Paul says here. He says again, just to put this in the proper context for you, when Paul said, gives his resume, he's says, again, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, the tribe of Benjamin, I've accomplished all this in the flesh. There was no one else to compare to me concerning the law and my studies and my knowledge and all this. And then he says, but all things, but that what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. And what Paul again is saying is this. All these things, my resume, all that I accomplished, all that I was, my lineage, heritage, all of these things. He says, that was what I was counting on to offer to God and say, look at my righteousness, Lord. All those things that were gained to me as my own righteousness is what he's saying. I count but lost. Why? Because there is a superior righteousness, and that is Jesus Christ. So to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is the law, the righteousness which is of God by faith, and that faith being Christ. So may we heed Paul's exhortation in chapter 1, verse 10, as we conclude this morning, approve things that are excellent as children of god as followers of christ may we be faithful in viewing that which is superior and that is knowing jesus for it is in our understanding that knowing jesus is superior to knowing any and all other things that we realize the fullness of god's provision for us i can do all things through christ which strengthens me my god shall supply all your need according to his riches which are uh, by Christ Jesus. And that's absolutely true, but it's in relation to those who are aware and committed to the superiority of Jesus Christ and knowing him. And that the gospel continue to go forth. Approve things that are excellent. Examine and live in the truth of that which is superior. And again, I submit to you, what could be greater what gift what knowledge could be greater than that of knowing Jesus 
and continuing to know him. Let's stand together in prayer. Father.